Hey, how's it going, everybody? It's Nicholas Davenport, aka Mr. Mental Muscle, and we're back with another episode of the Mental Muscle Podcast. Now, today I want to talk about being the best. Now, whatever your field is, whether it's school, sport, business, whatever it is, you probably strive to do the best as you can be. Some people want to even be the best of all time. Now, to do this, we know it takes work. We know it takes practice. Now, hold that thought. Practice can mean a lot of things depending on who you ask. Even the great Alan Iverson made a joke about, we talk about practice, but does it go further than that? Because if everyone understands it takes a lot of hard work, consistency, dedication to become a quote unquote great person in your respective field, how come everyone isn't an expert? Now, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to learn about the steps that it takes to actually become an expert, and it won't be specific to any field, but it can be applied because overall, the same key components are needed. We're going to talk about the types of people, what their personalities are like, what they need to do to become an expert, become the best, because like I mentioned, it's more than just trying. If that was the case, everyone would be achieving the all-time great list, going to the NBA, becoming a Fortune 500 CEO, starting a, a mega business like Facebook or Apple, the list goes on. But this is the case that not everyone understands the steps. And even if you do understand said steps, I'm not saying it guarantees that you will be said greatness, but at least you'll understand what makes up an expert and someone who achieves what we call greatness. Now, let's take a step into two people who you probably heard their names before. And if you haven't heard their names, it's many stories just like theirs that you probably can relate to. So Warren Buffett and Kobe Bryant. Now you're probably thinking, what do these two have to do in common? If you're familiar with this channel, I'm always connecting different things and making sense of it. But all being said is Warren Buffett is a billionaire. He's been able to achieve many things in the business world, investing, venture capital, finance, the list goes on. But it didn't start that way. He had humble beginnings in Nebraska where he would go around selling door-to-door bubblegum, Coca-Cola, newspapers, magazine, anything he could sell, knock on people's door to make some money. Now, he would eventually use that money and then buy pinball machines. Now, with these pinball machines, we'd end up investing enough so he can sell off his pinball business for about $1,200, which would have been about $20,000 in today's money when he was only 15 years old. Now, this is like the 1940s. This is right after the uh, Great Depression. So being able to sell and make money in this time, pretty impressive in the fact that he wasn't even a legal adult yet. Now, let's go over to Kobe Bryant. Now, we know him, the late, great Kobe Bryant, as this superstar athlete who no one could outwork. No one had a sharper focus than he did. He had ice in his veins, and no one could stop him. Now, this is jumping the line because... If you don't know, he didn't start off as the best. His father played professional basketball, so it was thought to be he'll follow in the footsteps, which he did. But there was a time when he was at a camp when he was 12 years old, and he barely scored any points and barely got to play. But he made it his issue that he's going to work harder. He's going to understand the faults in his game. He's going to look at people who are doing what he's trying to do. He's going to analyze it and be critical of what he needs to do, and then come back and be better and better. And he kept doing that and eventually will go down in history as one of the greatest basketball players of all time. His name been mentioned with Michael Jordan, who's considered by most the greatest of all time, and he's usually right thereafter. His number even 24 later in his career shows this. Now, bringing them both together, Warren Buffett, who's now worth billions with his numerous companies and investments, and Kobe Bryant, who became the best in his game, arguably one of the best of all time. How did it get to this point? 
A lot of people say they were just naturals. They had that hustle, whether it be in the business world or sport. And that might have been true. You have to have some proclivity to becoming that. But what about being able to drive further when things don't go your way? Because there's definitely times when it didn't go their way. Warren Buffett didn't get handed a silver spoon necessarily. And Kobe Bryant didn't necessarily just wake up dunking on people. So this is where we want to talk about someone named Anders Ericsson. Now, Anders Ericsson was a psychologist who studied at FSU, Florida State University. And his focus was seeing the cognitive personality and the goal attributions that led to people being expert, whether it be medicine, academics, music, sport, or even chess. Now, he broke down through his studies the processes, how they learned to be what they are, and then how they grew and kept being better at it because it wasn't just this one-size-fits-all approach. So he had to see how did they even get there. So this overall episode is going to go into most of his work and how he came to be that leading expert on being an expert, but also different implications where you can add it to your daily routines and understand what you want to do. Now, if you've ever heard of something called the 10,000-hour law or the 10,000-hour rule, this actually is derived from Anders Ericsson's work. Now, Malcolm Gladwell had a book called Outliers, which this rule is mentioned. Now, the misconception is that the general public just ran with this number, 10,000 hours, implying that if you work at something, whatever your field is, for 10,000 hours, you'll be good enough to be an expert. Now, Gladwell and Ericsson would go on to say that this was an overgeneralization because just doing something is not enough to make you good or even great at it. It takes different steps and protocols while you're doing it. For example, I used to play football. There's plenty of people who showed up to practice every day, just like I did, but they never played in the game. They never got good enough to start or even touch the field. Could you argue that they didn't put in as much work as I did? Maybe, maybe not. But why didn't they get on the field? Why didn't their abilities improve like mine or anyone else's who got to start? There's more to this. Use this analogy, for example. Think about a race car driver. Now, I'll use myself once again. I've been driving since I was about 16 years old. I'm 34 right now. So that's 18 years you can argue that I've been driving. 18 years is a long time to do anything. That's more than half my life. So would that be safe to say that I can go join NASCAR and beat some of the best race car drivers out there? Probably not. That'd probably be dangerous for me and the other drivers. And even if I did survive, I probably wouldn't place, let alone win. Now, you would argue, but you've driven so much, 18 years, that's a long time, you should be experienced. But what about the actual act of what type of driving was I doing? More than likely, even if you're driving fast, some people are speed demons, the legal limit is about 60 to 80 miles per hour, depending where you're at. And even on the highway, some people go a little faster, 90 and sometimes 100, which you shouldn't. But the point is, that's not even close to what these NASCAR drivers or other Formula One or IndyCar drivers are going, depending on the race or the type of driving entity, it could be up to 150, close to even 200 miles per hour. So I, one, haven't driven at that speed. Two, the type and style of driving, the tracks they use, I haven't done that. So you can argue that maybe I'm an expert at driving on regular roads, sure. But when it comes to actual race car driving, I am not. And the same thing can be applied to the 10,000 hour rule. You can't just do it and think it's going to become being an expert just off of the practice or the act of doing it. So this is where Anders Ericsson went to research of how people become experts and looking into what they did. They actually looked at different fields such as music, sport, and the medicine. And what they found is the 10,000 hour is about an average of how long it would be if you practice three hours a day, every day for 10 years. 
So that's the 10,000 hour rule right there. But there's more to this because one, what if you don't practice every single day? Or what if you practice more than three hours? Or what if you understand and get it at a quicker pace than others? You might learn it in three, 4,000 hours to be an expert at your craft, maybe seven. Or let's say you have interruptions because of different life ramifications, it might become 30,000 hours or 20,000 hours, but you still get to the point where you're considered an expert, you have efficiency in your field amongst the best. So that's why it's a guideline. It's not meant to be taken at face value. So we got to understand that don't just run with the fact that if I do anything for 10,000 hours, which is roughly three hours a day, every day for 10 years, and some people do practice their respective sport or skill to this magnitude, but let's say a musician who's taking piano lessons and they're not getting better, there might be something more to it. So let's give an example from Anderson's actual work. Now in the 70s, he took one of his students named Steve and he said, can I teach Steve how to become an expert at memorizing long spans of numbers? Now, Steve was a general student. He wasn't necessarily super advanced. He wanted someone who was regular. It wasn't meant to be someone who has a great memory and see, can you get them there? Which does happen in other aspects where you have someone that's talent and just expound on it. But he wanted someone with less talent or even just average because he wanted to see, can we teach them to become better at this ability? Now, what Steve had to do, he would do one-hour sessions, and he would give them a string of numbers that we'd have to memorize at about a pace of one number per second so we can keep up with it. Then he had to recall them back. And if he got it right, he would go to the next amount. So he started at five or six, he'd go to seven and so forth. Or if he got it wrong, he would go back two digits. So you had some kind of reinforcement or some kind of like punishment, if you will, because if you don't get it right, you have to go backwards, which can be frustrating, especially when your goal is to get as much as you can. Now, at first, Steve struggled with getting past seven or eight, which is about typical for anyone. About five to seven digits or items is usually typical for people to memorize. But seven, eight, it gets a little more trickier. Now, he got stuck around the eight, nine marker. And within frustration, it was about four sessions in, he had to end up re-strategizing. And eventually, he would get to more sessions, up to about 60 sessions, he would get up to 20 numbers memorized. That's double what he was already doing and very, very impressive. Now, after about 100 sessions, he would go up to remembering 40 digits. And after 200 sessions, he would get to about 80 digits remembered. Now you're thinking, one, that's, that's, that's amazing. Remember, that many digits. Most people can't do six or seven, like I said. But it's not even the fact that he even got that high. It's like, how did he improve so much? What did he do? Now, he would get some strategy he would think of. For example, there's something called chunking, where you group up numbers. Instead of seeing each digit as an individual item, you would group them up. So instead of seeing, say, four, five, six, two, you would see 4,562. Or you might see it as a date. So depending on what your numbers you're getting, you would see it as a date and you would itemize them. And that's how he was able to compartmentalize them as dates or things that are relevant to help make sense of it. So he's not remembering every single digit. Now that's one way to do it. Now, the thing was, after he did this, Anders wanted to see if he could get his friend Dario, someone else, and have Steve teach him his techniques. And Dario got even higher and he got over to 100 numbers with the guidance of Steve, and he even would come up with his own strategies. So you see how not only do you have to have deliberate practice of something that had to be specific to the skill he was trying to learn, he also got feedback and criticism from someone who already did it and was better, and then he created his own strategies after reflecting on his own performance and taking everything else with them. Now, in a nutshell, this plays into how people are able 
to become experts at their field. They're able to learn and strategize from what they're doing in real time themselves, getting objective and outside feedback, and then reflecting and making up strategies so they can achieve what they're trying to do. Now, if we continue on the aspect of coaching and feedback, there's two specific people that get cited a lot throughout history. And they're from, once again, completely different walks of life. And in this case, extremely different lifetimes because Warren Buffett and Kobe Bryant, Kobe Bryant unfortunately passed a few years back, but Warren Buffett is still alive. So they lived at the same time period at some point. But these next two never saw face to face and were hundreds of years separated. One is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and the other is Eldrick Tiger Woods. Now, Tiger Woods, you know him as one of the top golfers of all time. Now, Mozart, one of the top musicians of all time. Now, their commonality is not just being great at the respective fields, but they both started before they were old enough to walk. Tiger's dad put the golf club in his crib, you know, to play around with the little baby club. And then Mozart was composing music by the time he was five. Now, the takeaway is both of their dads put a lot of pressure, put a lot of work a lot of practice to get their sons to where they needed to be to become the greatest. But a lot of people don't know that Tiger Woods' father was a pretty good golfer and an instructor himself. And so was Mozart's dad was a, a good composer. So it's not like they were just getting these bossy dads pushing them around, trying to learn their skill. They actually had real feedback and criticism that came from their own experience and expertise. You can see how this coming full circle. Getting coached is not enough. If you look at any Little League baseball or football or basketball team, you got a bunch of weekend dads who are vicariously living through their child. And there's no shots to them. Those volunteers are great to have so our kids can play these sports. But a lot of times the feedback's coming from a place of what they saw on TV or video games or just learn from some source that isn't the best rather than someone who's actually lived it, coached it, taught it, and are experts at it themselves. And this is what Tiger and Mozart were getting. Because by the time they were adults, they were well-respected in their fields and leading their industries. So it wasn't just the fact that they were good and they practiced a lot and their dads put a lot of pressure on them. The feedback, the criticism, the growth was coming from two men that understood music or understood golf to a magnitude so they can inform when something was going wrong or incorrectly, they can improve it versus just saying, no, this needs to be better. How good of feedback could that be if you know what's wrong, but what about what's right. And a lot of times coaches who don't have great experience aren't really able to tell them what's right. Anyone can point out something's wrong, even people with the untrained eye, but it's harder to see what are the solutions, being solution focused, be able to help criticize in a way that fixes the problem. And this is what most experts need. This is why it's very key to have someone who's not just critical, but also knows how to inform and instruct on what you're trying to do. Now, these are things that are very important and even understanding the difference between positive and negative feedback. So let's use an example. Let's say you're studying for a math test and you're in high school and your teacher's trying to help you. Now, you can understand that teachers are supposed to know this stuff, but even them, they have sometimes informing and getting the person to where they need to be. But let's say the teacher wants to give you some help and you're having trouble with an algebra equation. Now, they're telling you that you're forgetting to carry the two or putting the exponent or the variable, whatever it is, in the wrong place. That's what's wrong, right? But if they can see how you even got to the point where you're missing carrying the variable or the exponent, whatever it may be, that'll help you tenfold because it'll help you from making the error in the first place, which leads to the outcome that they don't want. So understanding positive feedback, it still could sound negative in the sense of, oh, I did it wrong, but it actually guides you to the actual solution or the preventative steps that can keep you from getting to the point where it doesn't help you. 
Now, if I use my own life, seeking out feedback in general is important. You got to get this criticism. So I purposely throughout my career have taken internships from people in respective fields or the same field even, and got them to criticize my work. I would do things for them. And I put myself in positions. Like I did an internship where I ended up doing a paper that got published in a research article. And I purposely had to get it revised numerous times. And he had to point out the feedback. I actually brought him on this podcast a few months ago. His name is Dr. Ryan Sherman. And he had to give me feedback and be critical. Like, okay, this is not right, but this is where you can improve. This is what you did wrong. And I would go back, revise, go back and revise. And did probably three or four times before we finally submitted it. And guess what? The IRB, which is the Institutional Review Board, the ones who approved the study, they sent it back for revision. So you can see how this feedback is important. So before I even got the yes, I got about 20 no's. So feedback, not also just about getting instruction, it's also making you more resilient with the fact that you're not always going to get the straight answer. Sometimes you will get it right the first time. It will happen, but it's not going to be every time. It's going to be majority not getting right the first time. And people need to understand that because part of being an expert or great at your skill or your field is understanding that you don't always got the right answers and sometimes you're not going to win. But that's a whole other topic for now. So going back to the point, I got this feedback and it helped me become who I am today because even to this day, I criticize myself even before I do these episodes, before I work with new clients, new contracts, writing proposals, because now it gives that extra layer of cautiousness and see, okay, am I doing this correct? So it lessens my chances of failing. Doesn't mean I won't fail, but it at least adds to the fact that I'm doing my due diligence. And this is how you become better within yourself as well as getting from other people. So now that you understand how you need objective feedback, someone to show you what you may be doing wrong or correct you into a better light. What about how you personally see things? We call these mental representations. This is very important and key because this shows you how to come to conclusions. We can talk about schemas or even biases later on, but the point is, how does your mind come to an endpoint of what it needs to see or what it needs to be? Now, for example, if I was to say something like, if I put on, let's say I put on the screen S and P, you can say, are these initials? Do they mean something? Starting point, salt and pepper, Scotty Pippen. Now, depending on the context of what you're trying to do, it's going to change. So if I say food item or something used on food, maybe it's salt and pepper. So it's just your brain trying to make sense of the information. Or if I put two spaces between the S and the P and I said, okay, what word is this made of? And those two blank spaces are letters. So it could be like, is it stop? Now, if I said some more context, if something you use to clean yourself, it becomes soap. Or something that you eat, it could become soup. So your brain makes sense of things. And you need to compartmentalize the information to achieve what you're going to do. Now, going back to the point of what I talked about with chunking, when Steve and Dario were learning how to memorize those numbers, they have to have an end goal. How much numbers one do I need to remember? How do I chunk them up? If I have 10 numbers, I'm doing five and five. Am I doing four, four and two? So you have to have this representation in your mind's eye. People talk about visualization or imagery. This is part of that working memory concept, your visual spatial sketch pad, where you actually see the image. Think of it like picture in picture. This is very important because let's say like in sports, I talk about this all the time, when working memory comes into play, it's making sense of the real-time information, but toggling between long-term stored information, what you already know, and then make it make sense in real time. So let's say a quarterback, he snaps the ball. He knows what play it is. They practice it dozens of times, hundreds of times probably. And it may not unfold exactly like it did in practice, but guess what? He knows where the receivers, the blockers, where it should be. But if someone's coming, a defender's coming to sack him, and he has to move out the pocket. He has to make sense of that in real time. 
but say, okay, he's not open now, and then go to the target that might be open. So you see how this makes sense in that concept? It's the same context when you want to achieve something. Now, a person who is an expert, these mental re representations become second nature. They're either able to recall old ones instantaneously or think of new ones on the spot. And this goes into something else we call cognitive flexibility. And we talk about being solution-focused, problem-solving. You look at experts in any field, they're great at making sense of real-time information and acting on it and make it work. Because a lot of times when people fail, whether it's taking a test, a sport, a job interview, it's mostly because they weren't able to take all the information, the cognitive load in real time, and then do what they need to do. And they choke or fall under pressure, something we call paralysis by analysis, right? So when we talk about an expert, it's made up of all these different parts. So it's not necessarily this one thing they do. You can even argue it's things that they don't do or things that they're able to do more efficiently at a micro level. And that, that adds up. It's just wins after wins, sub-level wins, which adds up to the big level win. So when it comes back to the mental representations, someone becomes an expert in their field. They're able to make sense of things in real time. One thing that we teach in performance and sports psychology, something like error parking, is when you make a mistake or an error or whatever you're doing, and instead of just dwelling on it, you stop yourself, cue yourself with either word or a physical, maybe slap your chest, your knee, but it brings attention. Okay, what happened? Think about what happened and then visualize, have a representation of, okay, we parked this error. It's a piece of paper. Whatever the mistake was, ball it up and you see it go into the trash in your mind's eye. You just represented that not bothering you anymore. You can see how this is very relevant to someone who wants to achieve greatness. They need to be able to let things roll off their shoulder. And it doesn't just happen simply because you don't like it. It has to be something intentional. So people are able to make these mental representations. They're able to do them quickly. They're able to do them more consistently. Just things you got to practice. So you got to look at it from that perspective. These are not things that they just have. A lot of people love to play the, oh, he's just a natural card. Is he? Maybe he is, but he still had to put work in beyond that. And he doesn't reach that top level. People argue whether it's talent versus hard work. And it might be an unpopular opinion. But do you want to take the person that's talented or the person that has hard work? Now, like I said, it may not be popular, but I take the person that's talented, and this is why. Long as their hard work or lack of hard work isn't horrendous, you can coach them up on that. You can teach skills to be more resilient. You can teach skills how to bounce back better, be more focused, right? That's what psychology, especially performance psychology, is all about. And people argue, say, I want hard work. Because talent is always show up. And this is true, but depending on the discrepancy in the level, and we're talking about peak level here, remember, peak, you need that talent. But all in all, you can take both sides, but there's going to be a limit to one or the other. But the growth for the ability to work harder and be more consistent is much greater than the person who has caps on their actual talent set. With that being said, it still gets to the point of what are the key components, what we can do to achieve that level of deliberate practice and get us to the point where we can be consistently good and become great. Now, we're talking about six different aspects that will break down that go into building this mindset to become your expert level self. Now, the first one is work on weaknesses. This is a huge one because we tend to like to do what we are good at. I talked about this on my episode on confidence. And it's good to do what we're good at because one, we know we're going to excel at it. We like to feel good. That reinforcement with the brain of just feeling like, okay, I accomplished something. There's a neuropsychological side of that. And there's also just a feel good side of that because your brain's getting reinforcement. I tried, I succeeded. I tried, I succeeded. Confidence. But that's only one part of it. But guess what? If you only work on what you're good at, you get better at it. Great. But what about what you're not good at? I would argue you need to work on your weakness a tad bit more than you work on your good traits. They both are needed because there's still skills that 
are necessary for you to succeed. But if you ignore the weaknesses, the, the deficit between the good traits and the bad traits get further and further, making you a less complete player, a less complete employee, a less complete business owner, whatever it may be. So you need to work on the weaknesses because it's going to lead to the, the bigger goal. So the next one is focus on the little things. Because a lot of times we get caught on the outcomes. What do we need to do? What do we need to execute? That's needed. We need to know what we're trying to achieve. But what are the processes that are needed to get there? Do I need to wake up at a certain time? Do I need to pay attention to little cues that I'm missing? How did you fall behind on that assignment? How did you make the mistake on that play? How did you not get that deadline done? What are the little intricacies that lead up to the bigger picture? Because this all adds up. Now, you might think it's minute. But if you overlook them, they might come back to haunt you and be your undoing. So make sure you focus on the things that might seem minor, but be detail-oriented, not necessarily to the point of perfectionism, but make sure you cross every T and dot every I. Now, the next one is repetition. Talked about this early, to be great or be good or an expert, you need to do consistent things. You need to work hard and stay focused, right? Okay, but repetition means not only doing it over and over, but doing even when it's monotonous, boring, you don't want to do, you don't want to get up that day. Because going back to the 10,000 hours rule, talk about three hours a day. Three hours is a decent amount of time, but you got to do this over and over again. Here and there only gets you but so far. So you have to be repetitious. Do it when it's monotonous and boring, even when you don't feel like it. I know it seems like you have to force it. Not within reason, of course, because sometimes you need to fall back. But if it's within reason, keep going because this repetition makes it your default mode. I always talk about this. It's not necessarily what you can do here and there because it's hard to have a same type of performance every single time. But if you can make your default mode, that means you're more likely to have that performance. So that's why it's good to be repetitious. And like I said, three hours a day consistently is going to be part of that, that number. Now, intense concentration and mindfulness. Now, this can go a few different ways because we say intense concentration, this means tunnel vision to an extent, your eyes on the prize seems cliche, right? But if you want to say, you know what, I want to do this task, I want to be good at this, but I want to go hang out with friends, or I want to go watch Netflix or whatever the distraction may be. Because we think about when they say mindfulness, that means being in the moment. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't have outlets or hobbies outside of the main task, you still need those, you're human. But when we say mindfulness, it gets misconstrued as this word that just means here and now. But how are you truly here and now? That's going back to being critical, being focused. So you know when you did something wrong. You can quickly say, wait, that's not right. Let me fix that. Or wait, let me go back. Or hold up, maybe I need to rethink this. Mindfulness includes being wrong and noticing it too. That's the part I don't think it's talked about enough. So when we say intense focus, it's not just focus on the task at hand, staying tunnel vision. That's part of it. But it's also knowing when and when not to do something or revert back and get it done another way. Now, solitary practice. This goes beyond what you do already with, say, your group, your team, your coach. Because you get good working with a structured program, a team, a coach. That's part of what we said. You need objective feedback, someone to reinforce things. But what are you doing when no one's watching? This is going to make a big difference because when no one's watching, these are the minor things. This goes back to focus on the little things, those minor details. This is where this happens because you're going to do things that require a little more work and you come through more breakthroughs that make you notice what you may have not noticed in the practice. Because remember, when the coach is there, you might perform different. A lot of people get that kind of Hawthorne effect, right? You might perform better when the coach is there. You might perform worse when the coach is there. But the point is, it influences your behavior and personality in that moment. 
So doing things while you're out of it may show a new side of you that you might have not noticed before to understand what you may be doing better or what you may be doing worse. Now, getting objective feedback. We mentioned this. Make sure you get this because it's so easy to get yes men. So it's not just getting feedback. Get feedback from people who can say, you know what? You did good on that run, but there was a few things I want to point out. Because if you only get, that was good job, Johnny. That was good job, Billy. That was good job, Lisa. Whatever it is, how do you get better if you're not getting told what's wrong? And if you are doing a good job, still get that. But there's always going to be something, not say to nitpick at, but at least to comment on or maybe give more reinforcement what you did right and maybe change it a little bit or add something to it so you know. So getting objective feedback, keyword objective, it shouldn't be from people who have 100% your interest. Obviously, your coaches do, but sometimes get it from people who don't have 100% your interest. Maybe a neutral party, maybe put a video up on social media, YouTube, because that's going to be the most objective feedback I can tell you. Look at the comments of some of my videos. So you'll understand that, okay, maybe I can go about this another way. And it doesn't necessarily have to be bad feedback. It might be good feedback or just criticism that helps you become better. Now, the last one, take notes from the greats. I talk about social modeling all the time. This is being able to see someone trying to do the endeavors you do or achieve the goals that you want or just someone who's great at their specific sport, job, task. And it doesn't necessarily have to be 100% in your field, but maybe it can give you the motivation or the objective learning to know this is how I maybe should shape my career or my journey to get better. Think about all the people who've done what you've done. You can look at their successes. You can look at their failures. You can look at when they won. You can look at when they lost. You can look at when they had a horrible outing in their life. And maybe you can relate to that because a lot of times we go through these things alone, whether we have coaches or not, or, or bosses, whoever can give us feedback. But sometimes it's good to see someone outside of us. We form these kind of parasocial relationships of someone saying, I identify with that. And that makes you kind of feel better too, outside of just getting better as a, a skill or a trait. But you understand you're not the only one that went through this. So these are key things to do so you can be able to achieve your best abilities. Now, what are some limitations to this? Because we talked about all the things we can do, but you got to be cautious of some biases or things that might detract you because a lot of times we get set in our ways. Now, one key limitation is people thinking that different skill sets or abilities or becoming an expert in general is domain specific. Now, what this means is saying that there's this, this one aspect of how your brain processes or how you go about certain things that achieves just this one other aspect. For example, you can say only practicing hitting can make you better at being a baseball player. That's saying it's only that one thing. But what about studying film? What about working on your speed, your strength, your conditioning? What about doing actual cognitive training, mental coaching, things that I do? That all goes into it. So when we get caught up only, this is all I got to do, it limits you. So you have to be able to know that there's more to the overall goal. Now, other limitation could be biases, because a lot of times people get so focused on what do I know? They're not open to new information. For example, confirmation bias. This is when we say, I'm going to look for things that I already believe in. You want to be an expert. You got to object to your own opinion sometimes. Sometimes it's like, maybe that's not the way. Even if you might think it's right and you've been doing good by it, see what else is out there. It might help you. And you don't have to take everything from it, but it gives you an indication that, okay, this is something that can help me. Now, another one could be the curse of knowledge because you get so good at something, going back to, are you going to be open to new information? Especially when it's a coach, make sure your coach doesn't have curse of knowledge because they only see it from their expert ability. They're going to explain it to you as an expert. You may not fully understand. Let's use the Heat's coach, Eric Spolstra. 
He's been to numerous championship NBA finals. He's won numerous. He's in one right now against the Denver Nuggets at the time of this recording. And he started as a video guy watching film, studying the other teams. He did that for years. Talk about deliberate practice. Then he got assistant coaching position. Then he got the head coaching position. And he's able to break things down because you're able to criticize better when you look at the intricate parts. The curse of knowledge would be something maybe like Michael Jordan. This is why they say the best athletes don't always make the best coaches. Sometimes they can, but most times they don't because their curse of expertise or curse of knowledge is going to be so high that they might just say, hey, this is what I did. I achieved it this way. I, I, I. And it's not to be dismissive of their players or their team or their business, whatever it is. It's just the fact they understand what it takes to be the best in their eyes. But when you want to be a leader or help someone else become great, or if you want to become great, it has to come from someone who can see it from an expert level, a mediocre level, a novice level, and a horrible worst case scenario level because that way they can see it from different perspectives so you can be better regardless of where you may fall and then as you progress they know how to guide you through each point so you don't want to fall victim of the curse of knowledge or even overconfidence bias when you think you know so much that you literally just don't try anything else so these are all things to watch out for because if you look at it like a practical example say something like doctors typically younger doctors are better not because it's just something against older doctors, but it's because staying on the newest things, going back to that curse of knowledge or even that overconfidence, if you've been practicing for 45 years, it's not saying you don't keep up with the newest things, but you might not take a hold of it as quickly. There's new technologies, new procedures, new techniques. So you might be doing things by the book, but there might be a more efficient way that you might not subscribe to because you've been doing it for 30, 40 years. And they found this in research that they typically see better performance in the doctors that are younger. So these are just things to take into consideration. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Anders Ericsson's work was great and it taught a lot in the field of psychology and performance for people of all demographics. Like I said, music, sport, medicine, chess, the list really goes on. His book, Peak, that he wrote a few years before he passed, it's also a great read. And I'll put the link to that book in the description below, so make sure you check that out. So all in all, what do you want to do now that you know this information? Are you going to go about your practice a little bit differently? Are you going to go get a coach or a mentor, someone to help objectively criticize you, to push you to be to your limits? This is what it takes. So whatever it is, whether you're an athlete, a business owner, a relationship, whatever it is, there's a way for you to improve and you can always get better so you can get your mind right. Thanks for tuning in.